Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 16th, 2022, a Wednesday, and it seems as if the eyes of America are on Florida for a couple of reasons. Firstly, of course, there's the politics of Florida. Donald Trump made a speech last night from his base in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And uh, he's back on the scene, um, although he never really left the stage. Perhaps the stage left him. And of course, his great rival in the Republican Party, uh, Ron DeSantis, is the current governor of Florida. So it seems as if Florida is the place that the future of the Republican Party is going to be determined. And in that sense, I guess, the future of America, too. Meanwhile, Florida is also the literary center of America this week. Uh, the Miami Book Fair is taking place and it's going to climax, so to speak, on Sunday, November the 20th, with um, some wonderful discussions. We've already had a number of guests uh, who will be appearing on uh, November the 20th in Florida, in Miami. And my guest today, Neil Gabler, will also be appearing. Um, he's one of America's leading writers, various kinds of books. His book, his first volume of um, his biography of Edward Kennedy, Catching the Wind, was acclaimed. And yesterday, the second volume came out, Against the Wind. Um, Edward Kennedy and the Rise of Conservatism, 1976 to 2009. And I guess while I was thinking about talking to Neil, um, this period represents a geographical cultural shift from Massachusetts to Florida. Neil is currently in neither place. He's in his home in Maine. Uh, Neil, is there a shift geographically and cultural, culturally? Is Florida now the heart of things? Has it replaced Massachusetts? Well, I don't know whether it's replaced Massachusetts. I think that Florida in some ways reflects the uh, political drift that the country has been undergoing for uh, you know, 50 years. Um, the country has become more conservative. And, uh, you know, Florida and the South and the West, you know, reflect that change. Um, actually, one could say, and the historian Heather Cox Richardson makes this claim, that the, the real shift came in, in the post-Civil War period when, uh, you know, the, the influence of, of the South went westward and basically colonized, uh, you know, a good portion of the country. But, uh, you know, whether Florida will be the, uh, the center of things uh, remains to be seen. <laughs> we'll see what happens in the next election. We'll, we'll see what happens in the primary. Uh, you know, there's, there's, a, uh, there, there's a war for the heart of Florida, as we well know. There was in the last... Uh, Neil, the this, does Florida have a heart? Well, <laughs> I, I won't say, I won't speak to that issue. Uh, but uh, remember, once upon a time, Jeb Bush and, and Marco Rubio were considered the leading contenders. Uh, for the Republican nomination, and another Floridian, uh, you know, bested them. So uh, now we've got two other Floridians uh, going head to head, and we'll we'll see the consequences. Much to be discussed, but we're not talking about Florida today. We're talking about Edward Kennedy, 
we did a show a couple of weeks ago with another biographer of Edward Kennedy, um, John A. Farrell. He has a new book out, Ted Kennedy, A Life. Yours is two volumes, um, yes. Neil. How did you, um, why did you decide to divide your, your biography uh, about um, Ted Kennedy, uh, Edward Kennedy into catching the wind and against the wind? Why do we need two volumes? Well, there were several reasons. I mean, I, I wrote them as a single volume, frankly, and then uh, partly because of the, the size, uh, you know, volume one is uh, nearly 800 pages of text and volume two is over a thousand pages. So it just become unwieldy to do it. But uh, there were other reasons as well. Um, one, I thought that, you know, there's there's a there's an arc to the story and it's kind of a double arc. I mean, there's the arc of catching the wind, the rise of liberalism, uh, the period of John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, when one could say that liberalism was at its high watermark in the United States. And Ted Kennedy was part of that, uh, that movement and part of that process. And then things change. Things change considerably. The wind shifts. And, you know, it, it struck me and I think it struck the publisher that, you know, these are are two different narratives and deserve two different books. But the other reason is this. When I set out to write this book, uh, I never considered it simply a biography of Ted Kennedy. Uh, I wasn't interested particularly in doing that. What I was interested in doing is surveying what happened to American liberalism and using Ted Kennedy's life as a prism through which to study that. So I, I really consider these books, and thankfully they've been regarded that way, by many of the people who've uh, uh, written reviews of them and who've read them and who've actually uh, you know, talked to me about them. Uh, I consider these books as really a history of American politics. Ted Kennedy is the kind of, uh, the, 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 the armature of that uh, approach, uh, but this is not a book that is simply about Ted Kennedy. And you know, figures as diverse as Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter and, uh, and Ronald Reagan and the Bushes are all, you know, central figures in, in the saga. And it really is a saga, the saga that I attempt to tell, which is what happened to American politics. The driving question of these books is not who is Ted Kennedy, although I do try and answer that question. But the driving question of these books is what happened to American liberalism in the course of Ted Kennedy's life and career. And also in an odd way, perhaps, Neil, you mentioned the um, you mentioned the Pharrell book, Ted Kennedy, A Life. What happened to our idea of what a life meant? You one of your other books, which is actually a book I really enjoyed, Thank classic you. of its own kind, Life, the movie, how entertainment conquered reality. Uh, that very much a follow up to Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death suggests that life itself became entertainment. We've done all sorts of shows about mm. life and entertainment and politics. One with John, John Carl, the idea of uh, being in the front row of, of, of the Trump show. We've all seen the movie, the Truman Show. You're an expert also on movies. You've written a number of books. Yes, I have. About the movies uh, on Walt Disney, um, on Barbara Streisand. To what extent has this rightward shift in American politics, Neil, gone with the shift towards a celebrity culture? And it's ironic because the Kennedys were once 
the mm. quintessential celebrities, but now they seem like archaic relics of a, of a different age. They certainly do. But, you know, celebrity cuts both ways. As you point out, you know, the Kennedys were among the first celebrity politicians. And they were the first to really to conflate the idea of celebrity with politics. They were as much a, a, an American soap opera uh, as they were a you know, political a dynasty. Um, but we get you know, someone like Donald Trump, uh, who is basically all show business and no politics, although he obviously enters politics and uses but he's, you know, he's, he's collapsed the two, so politics becomes show business. They're, in, they're indistinguishable. That's true. That's true. And, and the reason I argue in Life the Movie that that's happened is that entertainment is the most powerful and irresistible force in not only American culture, although we're sort of the primary purveyor of that, but in world culture. That entertainment is more powerful than any ism. It's more powerful than economics. It's more powerful than religion because it subsumes all of these things. It subsumes politics and isms and religion and journalism and whatever you whatever else you can think of. Entertainment is this force that converts everything into entertainment. Again, the Kennedys were part of that process. Actually, in some cases, uh, they were victims of that process. Uh, but now this is a process that overwhelms everything. And when I wrote Life the Movie, which was in 1998, we didn't take these things for granted, but now we do. Now we take these things for granted. You know, I was looking basically at sort of the, the origins of a process, but now we are deep, deep, deep into this process. And, you know, it's, it's virtually impossible to get ourselves out of it. Um, you know, the, 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 the primary coverage of politics in America is basically entertainment coverage. You review campaigns the way you would review a, a film or a play or a book. Uh, you, you're, you regard individuals uh, in terms of their entertainment value. Donald Trump's campaign was largely a campaign, his original campaign in 2016, was largely a campaign predicated on its entertainment value. And, you know, it, it was Leslie Moonves, I think, when it was at the time the head of CBS, you know, who said that very thing, you know, it might be bad for the country, but he's great for CBS. You know, the idea being that he's great for entertainment. He's great for attracting eyeballs, uh, regardless of what he does to the country. And, and these are two different value systems. And what we've seen is the way in which one value system, which is the value system of entertainment, generally has overwhelmed the other value system, which is the value system of morals and politics. Yeah, one wonders if they can go together. We'll come to that a little bit later, perhaps, um, Neil, in this. It seems to be, we, we've done a number of shows about this rightward drift. It's no secret in American politics. There seem to be maybe more than two, but two core schools of thought. There's one articulated by, I think, historians like Kevin Boyle. He wrote a book called The Shattering about America in the 1960s and particularly Nixon and the wolf whistle politics of Nixon, which represents a shift towards the, the racism that Heather Cox Richardson, as you suggested at the beginning, talks about. Mm -hmm. And then the other school seems to be represented by Rick Perlstein um, in terms of beginning the period with, with Reagan, not 
because of his ideology, of course, Perlstein wrote the classic Reagan line, because Reagan represented that convergence of entertainment and quote-unquote ideology, where Reagan collapsed entertainment and politics. Yes, he did. Which school, I, I mean, in, in terms of your analysis of Ted Kennedy, I'd be curious, what would be his take? Would he see the beginnings of contemporary conservatism with Nixon or with, with Reagan? Well, I, let, me, let me again conflate the two. I don't know what, what Kennedy would have you know, said uh, exactly, but I think he, he perceived that Nixon is really the kind of, of um, central figure in the beginning of the change in American life and the move rightward. Um, you know, as Rick Perlstein points out in Nixon land, uh, what Nixon did was he projected his own personal resentments, which were enormous, uh, onto the nation. And by doing so, he drew upon the resentments of Americans who felt as he felt about himself, that he'd been condescended to, um, that he'd been humiliated. This wasn't, I mean, this had happened many times before. I mean, from, from Jackson onwards, right? I yes, mean, this wasn't yes. New. Uh, but, but Nixon is a master. Nixon is a master of resentment. I mean, he's the virtuoso of resentment. And when he wins the, when he campaigns for the presidency, before he wins the presidency in 1968, what's he doing? He's drawing on the dissatisfactions, the grievances of white Americans whom he believes, probably rightly, see the world in the same fashion that he sees it. They're resentful of black Americans. They don't embrace them the way that the Kennedys and Lyndon Johnson called upon Americans to do. They're resentful of them. They see America as a zero-sum game. And the rights that are, are given to black uh, Americans are taken from white Americans. The, the notion of a Southern strategy, that you centralize your political strategy on the South and the West, where race is you know, a virulently powerful force, you know, Nixon did that. Law and order, which were, we all knew were euphemisms <clears throat> against uh, you know, African-Americans. Nixon was the one who drew on American resentment. He was the one who brought a process that was at the fringes of conservatism into the heart of the Republican Party. Yes, what Reagan does is he converts the presidency into a movie and puts a smile on the resentments that Nixon had teased out of the American public. But I think Kennedy, well, I know what Kennedy thought of Richard Nixon, that he thought of Richard Nixon's enterprise was to destroy the New Deal. Nixon said that himself. Kennedy didn't have to say this. Was to destroy the New Deal and to destroy liberalism and to create basically a permanent Republican majority that would be based on white resentment. You know, there's a chapter titled of volume one of my biography, <clears throat> which is a line of Richard Nixon's, where he says, people don't want to be improved. And this was a line of attack that he had and that he felt sincerely against liberalism. Liberals are out to improve people, to draw upon their 
they're better angels and they're better selves. And Nixon, who understood the darker side of people because he had such a dark side himself, truly a vile man. I mean, let's not you know, mince words here. A truly vile man who detested American democracy and in fact was basically had to resign office because he tried to undermine it. Uh, you know, he believed that if you draw upon the, that dark side, you will beat liberalism, you will beat it to a pulp. And that was the thing that he did. Now, what Reagan did is he, he made this seem, you know, well, I, there's a line of, of Mario Cuomo's, which I have always loved and I think is so accurate. He said, Ronald Reagan made the denial of compassion respectable. And one of the stories I tell in, in volume two of this book, which is to my mind, one of the major forces in American political transformation is what I call the moral recalibration of the country. And Ronald Reagan was the one who really affected this moral recalibration. Uh, and he did it with a smile. He did it in a sunny way. Nixon could not have finally affected In another way, um, I don't know if Nixon, Nixon is the the white paper and Reagan is the movie. Um, and, and you use right. 1975 is the key year in, that's when Catching the Wind ends. Yes. And uh, 1976 is when Against the Wind uh, begins, your, your second volume of the of yes. Kennedy bio. As you say, it's a broader analysis of politics in America and democracy in America. At what point, Neil, did Ted Kennedy understand that the wind had changed? I think he began to, to understand the wind of change in 1975, 1976. Volume one ends with the episode in which Ted Kennedy, who advocated for integrated schools, is literally attacked, pelted with eggs, his, the, the, the door handles on his car smeared with dog feces. He is chased, he is chased for, for, for his life into a, uh, a subway station in Boston by a mad and angry crowd as his advisors and staff hold the doors so that Ted can escape and jump on a, a, a subway car to escape this, this mob. This mob is animated by busing and integration in Boston. This is a mob of ethnics, of the Irish and Italians. Who yeah, been... I mean, it's the equivalent. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of David Paul Kuhn. He has a book out. We did a show with him a couple of years ago about the hard hat rebellion in New York. I think it was in 1979. So yes, this is I the, remember that as well. The, the, the Boston version of this. This is what That's white work, angry, angry white working class uh, men for the most part. Is that correct? Yes. And the resentment, one of them, as I quote in, in the beginning of volume two, because that's where volume two picks up the story. Their resentment wasn't just against blacks, although they were deeply racist and they did resent blacks. But the resentment was against those liberals who had previously befriended them. But now they felt it turned their backs on them and embraced the black cause. And that's why Kennedy literally had to run for his life. So that becomes an inflection point. 
And when you asked the, the, the question, there's a long answer to your question, but your, your question is, when did he come to realize that? Well, I think he had intimations of it along the way. Everyone did in America throughout Richard Nixon's presidency. You knew that something was going on and it wasn't, if you were a liberal, particularly good. But the inflection point, I think, was 1975, 1976, when, when things just began to curdle. Um, even though Nixon was forced from office or forced himself from office, basically, uh, because of Watergate. Um, but that didn't stop. That seemed temporarily, uh, temporarily stopped what Nixon was doing. Uh, but the enterprise continued. And when Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1976, larger as a largely as a reaction to Watergate and to Richard Nixon, Carter doesn't embrace the full-throated liberalism that Ted Kennedy and his brothers before him uh, and Lyndon Johnson, uh, the full-throated liberalism that they advocated for and uh, that they embraced. And this becomes the source of tension between Kennedy and Carter. Yeah, and, and Neil, I, I like quoting, who doesn't like quoting Bob Dylan? He famously said, <laughs> you, you don't need a weatherman to know which That's way right. the wind blows. How much of this was bound up in just the, the, the architectural change of, of, of economics? We've done many shows, again, on the history of neoliberalism, one with an excellent historian of uh, economic historian, Gary Gerstle, the rise and fall of the neoliberal order. To what extent can we separate the personalities from the more tectonic economic forces? I mean, of course, there was Nixon and of course there was Reagan. What about just the the, the, the the structural changes in American capitalism in the 1970s and 80s? My sense, and I, I may be you know, an outlier on this, is that economic change was less significant, even though there was clearly, you know, there was inequality, although the inequality grew by leaps and bounds when Ronald Reagan was there uh, and, and came into power. But my, my sense is always the cultural issues were more significant than the economic issues. Not that these two things didn't interrelate and didn't feed one another, but I, I felt that the, the uh, cultural issues of America, race particularly, uh, became you know, cent centralized. And um, that, to my mind, was the... Um, was was the primary moving force. So, so Neil, did did Ted Kennedy? That's probably Kennedy, right? Ke uh, did Ted Sorry Kennedy change? I mean, in um, in Farrell's book, he he suggests in a way that for Kennedy, Congress was almost a retreat. He understood that he wasn't carved out to be president. He never would be like his brothers. And so he, he was only a great man when he was a legislator in Congress, which is, a, I guess, in a way, a psychological interpretation of Kennedy. You seem to have a more historical one. Are you suggesting that Kennedy retreated into Congress as popular opinion and populism grew against what he and his family represented? I don't think that's an accurate characterization. Retreated is not... You know, I mean, there are two sides to this, as you just pointed out. There's the personal side. You know, he had a, as Arthur Schlesinger Jr. analyzed it, he said that, you know, Ted Kennedy had a, a parliamentary temperament, 
whereas his brothers had an executive temperament. They lusted for the presidency. They wanted it badly. And they used the Senate as a stepping stone to try and get to the presidency. I think Ted Kennedy wanted the presidency. I mean, he admits that. You have to take him at his word. He wanted to be president of the United States because he knew that's where the power was. But his temperament was nowhere near as, uh, as executive as his brother's. He didn't have that kind of lust. And, and he understood, too, that the, the mechanisms of American politics were changing. And that it was harder. It was a harder road for him to hoe. It wasn't something, row for him to hoe. It, it wasn't something that he thought, you know, I can never be president of the United States. I don't think he ever came to that conclusion, even after Chappaquiddick. Uh, obviously, when he ran for the presidency in 1980, you know, he thought that he had a very good chance of capturing the nomination against Jimmy Carter and of capturing the presidency itself. But, you know, so I, I don't think it was just he came to some personal reckoning about his own qualities and characteristics that, uh, that led him to believe he could never be president because he wasn't presidential timber. Um, but I think it was, you know, a, a, a predilection for a, a, a style of governance, which was institutional, uh, that his brothers didn't have, and also a sense that uh, the winds had shifted. And so I think it's a combination. Of right, but Farrell argues, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with his argument that. No, I'm not Kennedy, necessarily. So I haven't. Well, read okay. he, he argues that Kennedy's achievement was the ability to cross the aisle, to talk to people on the other side. It seems to me as if you're presenting Kennedy in a more ideological sense. So you probably wouldn't view his ability to craft legislation bipartisan legislation in a, in a heroic way. What's your analysis of his congressional career? What were his achievements? And, and, and how are you perhaps disappointed with the career? If, we're, if we were to uh, rewrite it and second guess Kennedy, what mistakes did he make? Well, there's a lot packed into that question. Uh, yes, he crossed the aisle. Uh, he was a pragmatist. And he functioned for a good part of his career in, a, in, in an institution, the United States Senate, where Republicans held the power. So he didn't have a choice in this matter. If he wanted to pass legislation, and he was very, very interested in passing legislation. I mean, that was his, his, his mission first and foremost. Do things. Get the results. I have a title of one of the chapters. You know, we need the results. That's Ted Kennedy. We need the results. How do you get the Is results? Is that admirable, Neil? Oh, I think it's very admirable. You know, look at, look at Andrew. You know, how many senators, you know, pass significant pieces of, one significant piece of legislation? Ted Kennedy sponsored, I believe it was 2,500 pieces of legislation, 700 of which he passed. And these were not minor pieces of legislation. I call him the most consequential politician of his time on the basis that if you measure consequences on, on this basis, on the basis that he affected more lives than any single public figure. He affected the lives of virtually every single American, whether it's the National Cancer Act or Meals on Wheels or the Ryan White AIDS Act or SCHIP, which was the program that provided health insurance for children 
whose, whose parents didn't qualify for Medicaid, but who couldn't afford health care for them. HIPAA. Uh, I mean, it, the, the list is, is endless. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary list of accomplishment. And to do those things, the minimum wage. I mean, we wouldn't have had these raises in the minimum wage if it weren't for Ted Kennedy. No one was particularly interested aside from Ted Kennedy. And Republicans adamantly resisted giving workers an extra quarter an hour for, for their work. But Ted Kennedy fought for that. The immigration reform, Ted Kennedy fought for that. I mean, Ted Kennedy fought for all of these things, but he wouldn't have accomplished them, let's be honest. Take something like S-Chip. Who was the co-sponsor on S-Chip? It was Warren Hatch, one of the most conservative senators. So he did cross the aisle. But that, I do not think, is the only, or even in my estimation, the primary reason that he achieved these accomplishments. I have a different view. It's not ideological, because I don't think that Ted Kennedy was particularly ideological. Uh, I think that his politics were morally driven. And what Ted Kennedy had was a moral passion that moved an institution where very few people had moral passion. And I think of the line that Joe Biden said at the dedication of the Edward Kennedy Institute, where he said, people didn't want to feel small in front of Ted Kennedy, even when they were small, by which he meant Ted Kennedy's moral passion, which was the driver of his politics, almost every single thing he does, all those things I mentioned, all of those things I mentioned, those were all things that were morally driven. And, you know, that is something that we don't see it now, so we don't know what kind of effect it has. But I think for Kennedy, it was very powerful. In addition to a, a, a host of other things, I mean, there was a ray of talents that he had. You know, his, his sociability, his uh, understanding of human nature. Uh, I mean, all of those things, I think, contributed to his success as a legislator, the best legislator in the history of, of the United States Senate. But the single most important to me, and even his colleagues talk about this, was his moral fervor. Seems like from this conversation, people were just listening. There's only one party in, in America, which is the Republicans. We talked about Trump and uh, DeSantis. We've talked about Nixon and Reagan. But of course, there is another party. And that was the party that Ted Kennedy was a member of. And you write about that in, in many ways in the book. We've done a number of shows on the history of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. One with, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Michael Kazin, what it took to win a history of the Democratic Party. And recently did a show with Michael Tomaski on Joe Biden and um, the, 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 the rediscovery, if you like, of a radicalism in American politics. Tomaski is the editor of The New Republic. What does the, what is your, your two books and particularly the second, uh, the second volume, which is just out, uh, Against the Wind, what does it tell us about the history of the Democratic Party over the last 40 years, Neil? Well, what it tells us about the history of the Democratic Party, first of all, is the Democratic Party is, has been very fractured between those elements that believe the Democrats cannot win unless they move rightward. And, and those 
who believe that the party can't win <laughs> unless it moves leftward. And this was the very dispute that Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter had uh, when Ted Kennedy decided to run against him. You know, th that dispute was not about Ted Kennedy's ambition. It had almost nothing to do with ambition. It had to do with Ted Kennedy's feeling that the Democratic Party was the repository of moral values in America. Certainly the Republicans didn't have those moral values. They didn't value compassion, decency, tolerance, all of those things. They didn't then, they don't now. And, and so if you- right, None of them? None of them? No, no Republican? No Republican now. No, in those days, there were a handful, a handful. But I'll tell you, Andrew, the story that I tell in this book, and I don't tell it because I have any, you know, uh, uh, any reason to, uh, to boost the Democratic Party, um, but the story I tell in this book is the story of Ted Kennedy fighting for the dispossessed, the marginalized, the vulnerable, and another party, the vast majority of which, the vast majority of which will do anything to stop that battle. Now, you can say they're equivalent, helping the poor, the, the powerless, the voiceless is the equivalence of giving tax cuts to rich people. But Ted Kennedy did not feel that way. No, Ted Kennedy did not feel that way. And he was afraid. He was afraid of the timidity, the timorousness, and the cowardice of his own party. And the Democratic Party to this day is fighting that battle. And is that most captured, what, by Clinton, by Carter, by who? Carter first, and then Clinton. Of course, what about Biden? Really, what, what Carter animates, you know, Kennedy to. to yeah, I mean, him. are you uh, are you in Tomaski's camp on Biden as um, an old new Democrat, if you like, in the FDR, LBJ, Ted Kennedy tradition? Yes, I, I think that you know, well, if, if Biden's all politicians are complicated, or with few exceptions, and Biden's complicated. Uh, you know, Biden is in a in an older Democratic tradition. But when Ted Kennedy and Biden served together in, in the Senate, you know, Ted saw Biden as, as sort of a trimmer, uh, that Biden was not, you know, a true believer. He really didn't have the kind of passion that animated a Ted Kennedy. And he always worried about Biden because of that. And we see this in, in the, uh, and I tell the story in this book, and many of your, your uh, listeners know it. I mean, the, the battles when Biden was the chair of the Judiciary Committee of the Supreme Court battles, where Biden, you know, particularly when you focus on the Clarence Thomas, you know, hearings, Biden didn't have the, the fire in his belly. He was not going to, to do what needed to be done, what Kennedy did with Robert Bork, and what Biden failed to do with Clarence Thomas to stop Thomas from from being nominated, from being uh, confirmed for the Supreme Court. So Biden is is he's got some of of the uh, the old fervor, um, but things have shifted to what that how that old fervor what that old fervor means uh, in in this current context. How did Kennedy view Obama as a trimmer or as a radical? Or again, he's some of these I don't think he's very hard to simplify. 
I don't think he viewed him in either sense. What he viewed him as was as a, a legatee of his own brothers and of himself. And what, what did that mean? Well, I think that Ted very much saw John and Robert and wanted to see himself, though he was never all that self-aggrandizing, frankly. But he saw them as creating a larger narrative in American politics, which was a narrative of aspiration and a narrative of hope, uh, a narrative that gave a sense of how great this country could be if this country embraced its better angels. And when Caroline, his niece, came to him and talked about Obama, the way that she first talked about Obama to him in trying to get Ted to endorse Obama rather than endorse Hillary Clinton, what she said, my children have heard him and they are moved by him. And she compared him to her own father. And that was, I think, in what, what Ted Kennedy saw as, as Obama's gift. Obama had the gift of uplift. You know, they talked about George H.W. Bush's lacking the vision thing. He didn't have the vision thing. I think that Ted Kennedy very much believed in the vision thing and that he thought his brothers had it. And he thought Obama, almost singularly among modern American politicians, had it. And it was interesting, too, when he passed this mantle to Obama in January uh, 2008, when he endorsed it. That Obama himself talks about how he understood the weight of what he was accepting, that he was taking on the legacy himself of the Kennedys and what the Kennedys meant to American liberalism, and even more importantly, what the Kennedys meant to American aspiration. So you're suggesting that there's this weird sort of dichotomy in American political life. There's the real life of the Democrats, and then there's the movie life of the Republicans. Isn't there a, a movie-like quality also to Obama? Of course there is. Um, it's a different kind of movie. I mean, Obama, no less than Reagan, you know, understood, you know, how to appeal to, uh, to an audience. I mean, when you, you can think of, of, Americans as a constituency, or you can think of them as an audience. And Reagan certainly thought of them as an audience, which is not necessarily a bad thing. In some ways, it was one of you know, Reagan's true gifts. Um, you know, whatever you can say about Ronald Reagan, uh, and I'm not particularly kind to him in the book because he was not someone whose, whose moral sense I think was, was a, a particularly good one, but he raised the spirits of Americans. It, turning America into a movie, he made Americans feel the way they feel when they leave a theater, and generally they have that sense of uplift. And Obama had the same thing, and Obama worked on the same thing. And it's not coincidental that Ronald Reagan always talked about his political forebear as being not Robert Taft or someone like that, but Franklin Roosevelt, because Roosevelt had the same gift. Roosevelt understood that he was not only addressing a constituency, but an audience, and that as the entertainer of that audience, he had to lift their spirits. This is a very important part of American politics. And, you know, Ted Kennedy understood it as well, although 
you know, he never had the opportunity as president uh, to effectuate that kind of uplift. Neil, you've invested an enormous amount of time in these two volumes. I sure did. <laughs> and um, against the wind, you're clearly a very passionate man, but it's a history. I wonder how much of yourself is, is written into this, a nostalgia for a different age, perhaps a, a more moral age. Some people will be familiar with a, a very moving, in some ways shocking piece you wrote a few years ago, The Secret Shame of Middle-Class Americans, in which you placed yourself in the 50% the of Americans who had trouble finding $400 to pay for an emergency. And it, Shocked me because none, one would never expect it of a distinguished writer like yourself. How much is your life and the the history of American politics? How are they bound up? How are you? How how are they uh, entangled? You know, I've never been asked that question, Andrew, and it's a very interesting one. And uh, I would answer this way: that every biographer is simultaneously a biographer and an autobiographer. When you read Robert Carroll and Lyndon Johnson, you get a pretty good sense of who Robert Carroll is and how he feels, not just about Lyndon Johnson, but how he, he feels about life generally, what his vision is. And, and though I never do this consciously, I would never do it consciously. You know, I'm a human being who is sitting they're researching a life for 12 years as I did and writing about it. And it's, it's impossible for me not to express myself through Ted Kennedy. And I think anyone reading this book, you know, not that I'm a particularly interesting human being, I'm not, but anyone who, re who reads these books, these two volumes, you know, I think has a pretty good sense of who I am and how I feel and what my moral sense is. Um, they would have a sense of how I raised my children, uh, how I treat my wife. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that's, that comes with the territory. That just comes with the territory. It's not something I particularly like, not because I you know, hesitate to reveal myself. I just don't think I'm all that interesting. But it, it, it just, yes, these books express how I feel. And you, and you mentioned nostalgia. Yes, I do have a certain nostalgia. I'm an older guy. But anyone who lives in the America of today, where democracy dangles by a thread, and we have no idea in, in whither this country, we really don't know, uh, has to have some nostalgia for a period when Americans believed that a Civil Rights Act in 1964 was the right thing to do. The Voting Rights Act in 1965 was a right thing to do. When there was a moral sense and a sense of purpose in this country. And, you know, yes, I'm nostalgic for that, but I'll, I'll say this as, as well. One of the reasons I wrote these books is to rekindle a sense of virtue. Whatever else Robert, whatever else Edward Kennedy, you know, did in his life, and he wasn't always the, the most virtuous of men in his private life. He was an apostate of, uh, apostle, I should say, an apostle of virtue in his public and political life. And I believe that if this country is going to redeem its own soul, and I think it can, it's not going to be done through 
another Ted Kennedy. It's going to be done through the American people finding their virtue. Politics, good politics, is predicated on virtue. And Ted Kennedy understood that. And it is why he is relevant, even though he's been dead now for 13 years. It makes him relevant to this moment and to our politics today.